Revisiting the work of the film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum can feel like looking back on a psychic whose predictions always came true. So many great movies that are now widely revered, from Abbas Kiarostami's Taste of Cherry, to Jacques Tati's Playtime, to Orson Welles's F for Fake, to Elaine May's Ishtar, received early and enthusiastic support from Rosenbaum at a time when they were at best divisive and at worst widely reviled. But Rosenbaum didn't just anticipate cinephile taste, he shaped it. In 1998, when the American Film Institute published its stodgy, conservative list of the 100 greatest films of all time, Rosenbaum published his own alternative top 100, and if that list feels so much more alive today, it's a testament to how many of the people who read Rosenbaum as teenagers and young adults grew up to be influential critics, programmers, and distributors themselves. Rosenbaum has been a hero of mine since I discovered his book Movie Wars, first published in 2000, at my local library. Bearing the subtitle, How Hollywood and the Media Limit What Movies We Can See, it took aim at the gatekeepers of serious cinema in the United States, from the American Film Institute to the New York Times Art Section to Harvey Weinstein's Miramax, accusing them of limiting the horizons of filmgoers' imaginations. This posed a fascinating challenge to me as a teenager, as these institutions were so often positioned in the mainstream media as benevolent liberal organizations kind enough to steer a primitive audience towards art it could understand. Rosenbaum's writing has been left-wing, internationally attuned, and skeptical of the received wisdom that so many of his contemporaries swallowed wholesale. From 1987 to 2008, he wrote for the Chicago Reader, where he had the freedom to write a lengthy article explaining why Joe Dante's Small Soldiers was both better and more progressive than another war movie playing at that same time, Saving Private Ryan. His best work has been published in such books as Placing Movies, Movies as Politics, Essential Cinema, and Goodbye Cinema, Hello Cinephilia, as well as his most recent interview collections, Cinematic Encounters. No less than Jean-Luc Godard called Rosenbaum the best living American critic, One of many lessons I've taken from his work over the years is that cinema is enormous and contains riches far beyond what is available at your local video store or on the front page of a streaming site. Now 77 years old and retired from weekly reviewing, Rosenbaum has been free to follow his interests wherever they take him. As anyone who reads his eccentric DVD column in Cinemascope magazine knows, he remains excited by new developments in film culture and is constantly revisiting and reevaluating his old judgments. I spoke to him over Zoom to discuss his career, his politics, and how the cinematic landscape has changed since the 90s. In your writing, you've often mentioned your childhood in Alabama and, of course, the years you spent in Paris in your 20s. How did those two locations inform both your politics and your way of approaching cinema? It's complicated. I mean, I grew up in a very, you know, could say reactionary part of the United States, but at the same time, it was in one of the more liberal parts of Alabama because it was the Tennessee, you know, the TVA. And my family was was sort of like, you know, intellectual and um, liberal. So I would say that the near almost eight years I spent in Europe, in Paris for five years and in London for two and a half, affected my politics even more than growing up in Alabama did in, so, in a lot of ways. How so? 
Well, you know, I was on national health in both countries. I was, um, I guess there's a whole kind of uh, collective mentality that I was, had been unacquainted with, except, you know, except for sort of like my civil rights and anti-war activities, you know, but I've, I think there's a kind of, there's a European position, which is that whatever you do is political, whereas it seems to me that there's an often, there's a tendency in America to look at a lot of activities as being apolitical, which I think would not be possible within a European sensibility. So a lot of it has to do with that, of seeing everything that one does as political. And that even if one does nothing, that that becomes accepting the status quo, which is a political position, you know. I know from your writing that you gained a deeper appreciation of, for example, Jerry Lewis when you were in Paris. Uh, Well, actually, yeah, deeper. But I was a big fan since I was, you know, seven years old. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. Did you ever have a period where you disowned him like so many did? Yeah, I mean, I basically loved his early movies, you know. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is what I find amazing is that Americans are in denial that they embrace Jerry Lewis, you know. I bring it up because the Europeans have a particular relationship with Jerry Lewis, it seems, um, not to get stereotypical about it, but they seem to regard him as as a particular symbol of America. Um, Yes. and, And, you know, thinking of that, did you gain a different perspective, uh, maybe a more removed perspective on American cinema by living in Europe? Certainly, but I, I don't think that's only European because, you know, like my friend Manasai Vafa made a film about called Jerry and Me in which she basically, even herself says that she saw Jerry Lewis as America. So it's not just a European thing. I think it's a just a non-American thing. <laughs> sure. I, you know, I also went to a boarding school for two, year, for two years in... Uh, Vermont that had, you know, that was very international. A lot of international students attended. And, and you know, living in New York afterwards, I, I think even foreign visitors who visited the Frank Lloyd Wright house I grew up in. So it meant that I kind of like um, was drawn to a kind of internationalist perspective. But it, this became literalized once I started living abroad. I know you worked for a time in New York, but you spent the bulk of your career in Chicago. I know New York has a very storied uh, tradition of film criticism, you know, the the Kales and the Sarasas and the John Simons duking it out. And I guess, I guess Chicago has Siskel and Ebert, but was working in Chicago a different experience than working in New York would have been? Very different. And the way it was very different was that it was, it's not competitive in Chicago. New York is totally competitive. I mean, in New York, you're made to feel just by standing and breathing, you're taking up somebody else's space. Uh, Whereas there was very much of a live and let live attitude. I was friendly with Roger. Uh, Roger helped me in certain ways, you know, and I was very grateful for. Even though I, you know, we had very different constituencies and, you know, positions. I was not perceived by Roger as threatening his, whereas, you know, both Kale and Saris were very uh, wary of me. And, you know, I I eventually became friendly without being friends with with both of them in different ways. But this was after a long period of being uh, considered persona non grata with both of them. And that's typical of New York, because as I say, it's, it's like a, you know, a battlefield constantly. 
And I found it very unpleasant, actually, to tell you the truth, mm -hmm. uh, just because what's really funny is, is that the more powerful people are in certain situations, the more threatened they, easily threatened they become. So mm -hmm. that I couldn't, I couldn't criticize Saris and Kale. That's why, basically, they were so uh, hostile towards me. Because, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, when I met Pauline Kale in the, my first year at the... Um, National Society of Film Critics, she said to me after the first meeting I attended, I want you to know that I voted for you because nobody has attacked me so much over the years. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, that's because nobody else has read you so much over the years. <laughs> and then a year later, she actually said, when I told you that, I was only, I was only joking. There were other good reasons to have, you know, to have voted for you, which was nice of her to say, and to remember a whole year later. But that sort of indicates the way in which um, the New Yorkers think about these things, you know. Yeah, it sounds like one of those jokes with a kernel of truth, doesn't it? Um, do you think your criticism would have been different had you stayed in New York? By which I mean your criticism was often quite confrontational. Your criticism was always trying to chart a path that was different from the mainstream Hollywood um, you you wrote a lot about how PR and criticism would often meld in the 80s and 90s. Maybe this is a leading question, but were you more resistant to that living in the Midwest? Yeah, well, I don't think public relations was so difficult in, in the Midwest. See, I think part of the problem that I had, at least that I felt, is that for me, then and now, New York is a provincial place. I mean, even though it's sophisticated in some ways, New York reminds me of my hometown in Alabama, not just because everybody takes everything personally. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a small world. I mean, the world of Paris is a small world, too, mm -hmm. and, and the world of London. I mean, you know, and I had glimpses of what it was like to be in those worlds also. Mm -hmm. So that broadened my perspective. And, you know... I certainly am provincial in a lot of ways myself. I'm not trying to be holier than thou because I never really learned to be totally fluent in French, for example, even after, even though I lived for five years in Paris. So I have my limits too, but I, I generally think that what was very irritating to me about New York was the attitude that if it hasn't happened in New York, it hasn't happened. So even though I had a long career of writing about film, you know, during the eight years I was in Europe, I didn't exist when I came to New York. It's so much of it's about power. It's not, and you know, and about gatekeeping and that type of thing, you know. You know, when I was invited to write for Soho News, I was invited to force out another uh, reviewer. And I, I basically adamantly said I didn't want to, even though the person I was invited to force out was someone I whose positions I disagreed with a lot. And then she was offered the same possibility two and a half years later and accepted. So she forced me out of my job. You know, and that's, that, those kinds of uh, situations don't, didn't exist, never ex have, have existed in Chicago, certainly for me. And I don't think they've existed much for other people either. On a different note, one of the best known pieces you wrote was uh, Listomania from 1998, which for those who don't know, was a response to the American Film Institute's Top 100 Movies, and you had your alternate Top 100. I was looking at it again earlier today. I was struck by how it seems 20 years later, your list 
which was full at the time of movies that were once considered fringe or culty or off canon in some way seem to have ascended to canonical status. I'm thinking of movies like Wanda, um, Eraserhead, films by Elaine May, Charles Burnett. Whereas there are a lot of movies on the AFI list. I mean, I don't really hear people talking about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner much anymore. There are a lot of movies on that list that have withered on the vine. What do you attribute that to, the fact that so many films are Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, see, the whole AFI list, what was so objectionable about it largely was institutional, that it's people don't acknowledge that Hollywood is sort of calling the shots, you know? So, I mean, you know, it's like there were no independent filmmakers on the list. They weren't even considered. Originally, no no Chaplin, no uh, Cassavetes, you know, it's like... uh, no Jarmusch, you know. And the funny thing is, you see, that they, I didn't vote, vote in their thing for the 100 best, com- greatest film comedies, mm-hmm. but they didn't even include Monsieur Verdu in the 100, can- you know, in the hundreds of candidates, you know. It's like, because what, it was an independent film. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a Hollywood film. So just like, you know, the rating system and everything is tied to Hollywood interests, so if the same thing happens, you know, occurs in an independent film, it's more likely going to get a different rating than if it appears in a Hollywood film. So, what, I mean, the, basically what I was reacting against was studio propaganda, just as the Oscars are studio propaganda and advertising. People don't take the Oscars as advertising, but it is. And it's trying to advertise and ratify what are, it's already pushed down people's throats because, you know, it's like there's this, this belief that somehow everything is based on consensus when it's not consensus at all. Uh, and I tried to show that in my book, Movie Wars, you know, that you could sort of like have deals where the only way a theater can book a film that they want is to book another film that they don't want, which might lose money, but turns out to be the only film playing in town. And so because it's the only film playing in town, people would go to see it. And that's how a turkey like, uh, what was it called, Lucky Lady, you know, wound up becoming one of the big box office champs because (laughs) theaters had to show it. And so if there was nothing else playing in town, people would go to see it. And so then it becomes a saying, well, we just give the people what they like, but nobody knows what the public likes. Not even (laughs) the public knows what the public likes. So so I think that there's a kind of um, endless loop that goes on in terms of the self-promotion of the industry that I was reacting against. In the 90s, when that list came out, basically there was the mainstream media where, you know, they would they would write about this AFI list like it was a very serious event. And there were blockbuster video stores, which all had a tie-in promotion deal. Not only that, but it was amazing. They actually, it was front page news in the New York Times, the <laughs> AFI list. No, and the other thing that's happened, which I think is significant, is that we're in a better situation now, because precisely because... It used to be, as far as art films, or, you know, art house films were concerned, you had to get a favorable review in the New York Times in order for a film to play outside of New York, literally. In other words, it wouldn't even come to Chicago unless it got a good review in the New York Times. And oddly enough, the people in the Times weren't even aware of this. You know, it's sort of like they they were that naive and provincial, if you will. But the point is, is that it was the case, and it's not the case now. Siskel and Ebert partly changed it. A lot of things changed it, but it, they took the, the power away from, you know, I mean, it's not determined by one power base of New York now, at least for art house films. And because of that, 
people became open. And of course, all the things that became available on DVD and uh, Blu-ray, I mean, and, you know, and on and streaming now. I think what's amazing is that I, I know a lot of people in their 20s and younger than their 20s who, knew, who know more about film than I possibly could have known at their ages, even though I lived in Paris and London and New York because of the resources of the internet. And uh, even though obviously you can't get everything and there are limitations in that, at the same time, I actually think that there's an improved situation, an improved democratic situation and people being able to form their own canons. Even during the pandemic, I mean, it's sort of like, I've been writing articles about how all the possibilities that are open to people, you know, who don't even have to pay for films, you know, all the free things you can access, on places like YouTube, and there's a Russian website, OK.ru, and then there's there are other things too. I mean, you know, like just rediscovered of UBU.com, which has an awful lot of free films that you can access. And it, and the funny thing is, is that film going is just as collective and as community oriented as it was before, but the social aspect of it has changed because it's less often whole groups of people sitting together watching a film, but they're discussing it right afterwards on the internet. So it seems to me it's still become, it's still social, but social in a different way. I see on social media, groups of friends, groups of, I guess, critical communities even, will together start discovering certain filmmakers and they can influence each other in real time. You know, if, if a lot of people are logging I don't know, any filmmaker you can name. If a lot of people are logging Charles Burnett films one week, that inspires their friends to look at them. And that inspires their friends. That's another version of what they used to, we used to call word of mouth, you know, Mm -hmm. and, or still call word of mouth. And something I've been, I've been noticing because I kind of do a lot of tracking of who visits my website and what they access and so on. And I noticed the same thing you've mentioned that, you know, sometimes I don't know if it's sometimes a lot of people hit the same articles of mine because they're using them in a course or some other reason. But it does happen sometimes collectively, you know, that suddenly even a piece that I haven't posted, suddenly 30 people will be accessing it you know, all of a sudden. I want to ask you about something you brought up earlier, this idea of canons. Yeah. The canon, canons have come under a lot of scrutiny lately. I feel like you're using the word canon and canonization differently than it is often used. Could you talk a little bit about what your relationship to that word and concept is? Well, of course, when Harold Bloom mentions it, he sort of thinks that there's something, you know, like uh, over centuries, it gets sifted down. And it's not, it's not that we choose it, but that it's, but, you know, I actually think that even the people in academia who say that they're against canons indirectly create canons of their own by the tech, you know, sometimes it's canons of texts that you read about the films, even though it's not the films themselves, or sometimes it's the films themselves, because even the people who don't believe in canons usually believe in Douglas Sirk, for example. And the Oscars is a form of canonizing. It's just basically, I think what we have to think of in terms of canons is that more films are theoretically available to people than ever before but people are more desperate for lists because they have to have some criteria for selection. And usually what they fall back on is, you know, the films that the biggest box office receipts or 
the ones that got the Oscars and, you know, which are very boring kinds of, those are canon making, you know, but it seems to me that what people need to do, and it's become, it's more challenging, is to discover their own taste. And once they discover their own taste, follow that taste. And that means creating their own canons. See, most canons say, these are the good films, these are the bad films and so on. I actually think you can't just say a film is good. You have to say good for whom, good for what, you know? You can't just say good because that does that becomes meaningless by itself. You have to sort of like follow it by saying whom it's good for and what it's good for. Uh, because, you know, some people go to movies in order to forget their troubles. Some people go to movies in order to deal with their troubles, you know? Mm-hmm. And so how can the same movies be good for both things? They're not often. So we have to sort of like define what we're going to movies for before we can set up canons. But I think we do need to set, we all do set up canons. It's just like we're all subjective, even if we don't realize we're being subjective. And that's where my European uh, training comes in, you know, <laughs> that there's no, uh, there's no objectivity about any of this. And these canons are not fixed things. They're constantly evolving, right? Yes, that's right. Sure. And I'm sure if you were to do that again of your 100 alternate American films, if you did it today, I imagine it would be quite different. Yes. And I've even done, you know, revisions in terms of not revisions, but additions a couple of times, you know, like where I've made lists of things that I hadn't seen before that I've reconsidered. Uh, So sure. I think it's always, it's always changing. And the whole idea of sort of having a, you know, one of the things that I had against Pauline Kael was that for her, You'd see a film once and for all eternity, that's your judgment, you know? And it's sort of like, that doesn't give you much flexibility. I prefer, you know, viewer flexibility too. There are films that I hated the first time I saw and now considered great. And films that I once considered great that I now don't care about, you know? And I think we have to grow. And, or, you know, or we not only have to grow, we grow regardless of whether we want to or not. And so I think our changing canons should reflect that. In that spirit, in this particular moment, let's call it the Trump era, are there films and filmmakers that have become significantly more important to you? Well, I've become aware of certain filmmakers that I wasn't aware of before. I mean, just what I've been working on this summer recently, you know, I've just finished a draft of a, of a piece about uh, this Russian filmmaker, Kira Muratova, almost none of whose films are available in the United States, but she's, she's adored in Russia. And her films are, you know, we consider them impossible, crazy, difficult. But, you know, she was able to make, she died in her 80s, and she was able to make films on a regular basis. After her works were banned in the early part of her career, she, she was, you know, working quite regularly. So I'm really fascinated about that, and also fascinated by what is it that prevented us from being able to appreciate her or know about her works. But, you know, you can go on YouTube and find a lot of her major films available with subtitles. Mm -hmm. And then there are others that you can find the subtitles on the internet and then find them without subtitles on YouTube and easily put them together. So it's like, I think that there are a lot of ways in which we can be... um, resourceful in our canon building. And that's one thing. I'm also going to be writing an article uh, pretty soon about Kelly Reichert. And she's somebody who I've never written about, or hardly, you know, except an odd capsule or two. 
but I've actually gotten interested in her work and uh, and I, a lot of it makes me curious. I feel like I still need to learn a lot about it. I'm also, I've just finished, uh, you know, I'm still writing, reviewing a novel by a major Italian screenwriter who I didn't, you know, I knew as a name, but I didn't really know who we, what he represented. A guy named Tonina Guerra who worked with Fellini and Tarkovsky and Antonioni and I mean, actually, most of the major Italian filmmakers and who just died a few years ago at, in his 90s. And uh, he published this extraordinary novella in the 60s that I'm reviewing, which is, you know, interesting and of a literary point of view, because I'm still interested in literature, although I don't see read as much as I see films nowadays, but also the connections between films that I've liked, you know, in that. Those are three, you know, like I'm starting to canonize it's hard to canonize someone like Gera because we've seen all these films that he, he wrote or helped to write, but we don't really know what he brought to them because, uh, you know, Antonioni knows what he contributed, but we don't know. We just know that, you know, he got credits on all of them and, uh, and that he got, a, he got an Oscar for, you know, working on the script of Amacord, but we don't know, you know, Amacord is about the childhood memories of Fellini. So we don't know what's by Fellini and what's by Gera in that film. I've heard you described, I can't remember who it was who said it, but I've heard you described as the American critic who works the hardest to transcend his Americanness. And uh, in that spirit, can I ask, how American do you feel? Do you feel like an American critic? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I can't be anything else. I'm very provincial in a lot of American ways, despite the fact that I try to overcome some of those kinds of provinciality. But I mean, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with America being one of the, you know, I think America has the quality of other big countries. And by big countries, I mean like Russia, China, India. And countries of that size tend to get lost in themselves and don't think about the rest of the world. And I do try to overcome that. And so in that sense, maybe I'm trying to transcend American provinciality, I suppose. But, But at the same time, I have to concede that I am provincial. There's an awful lot of ways in which I can't transcend my Americanism. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think that one, I think it's important to be aware of what one's ignorant about. And that's what I try to do, rather than sort of say that I'm an expert in all these things, because I'm not. And in fact, one thing I really object to in the way film culture usually works is that there's a division people make between the professionals and the amateurs. When I'm usually, I mean, I'm basically on the side of the amateurs because the people who are considered professionals, and that's in academia and as well as, you know, in journalism, often no less than the amateurs. I mean, I can think of any examples of that. You know, people who basically were deciding my future as a, whether I got hired or not in academia, who knew nothing about film and who still rule the roost, you know? So I, 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 I'd say long live amateurishness, you know. Finally, I, I'd like to bring up Movie Wars again. That was the first book of yours I read. You talk a lot in that book about, you know, things like Miramax and Harvey Weinstein and the sort of stranglehold they had on, let's call it serious film culture in the United States at the time, or a figure like Orson Welles, the ideological challenge that he posed to Hollywood and the Hollywood way of doing things. 
How much of the book do you think is a time capsule and how much do you think stands in the current moment? Well, the one way in which the book is most dated is that it kind of like predates the DVD explosion, the internet explosion and all of that. So in that sense, it, you know, it is dated. But on the other hand, institutional ways that, you know, sort of like mainstream discourse is kind of dictated to the public is, remains this, very much the same. Do you think so, there's still think, a kind of monoculture? Uh, and, and is the monoculture more powerful or less powerful than it once was? Well, the funny thing is, in some ways, it may even be even more powerful, but in ways that it's very strange because, I mean, like, for example, I'm still kind of bewildered by the fact that everybody, almost everybody I know, completely fell hook, line, and sinker for the last Tarantino movie or for the last several Tarantino movies (laughs) and don't even see them, you know, like with sort of obvious things you could be critical about, at least ideologically, you know, as well, you know, and In other words, I think there's a certain kind of way in which there's a conservative element in the public and even among, you know, intellectuals and leftists that is satisfied and uh, gratified by Quentin Tarantino. I mean, which is why, I mean, I, you know, in other words, why I think that you know, to me, the mess, as I, you know, I wrote, I thought that the emotional message of the last Tarantino movie was make America great again, you know? Uh, and and so I think that there's a certain kind of way in which, again, it's the whole question of people not having, because they, they're, they're afraid of their own freedom in terms of, uh, you know, what they can go to see. So they'd rather fall back on a consensus idea. So everybody has to see Olivia de Havilland movies now because she just died, you know? And I found, I, I noticed everybody was, seeing her films before I even heard that she died. But then I thought, oh, wait, it must be because she died, you know. And, you know, that's kind of, that's a crazy reason for going off to see it, at least for me. I'm not, I mean, I guess it's okay, but it seems to me a kind of, um, you know, if her films were worth seeing before, why not see them before? Right, right. And why just wait till somebody dies before looking at their films? I mean, it just seems like, I don't know, that there's a kind of way in which, you know, it's news cycles, you know, like the news used to be, I used to get really aggravated by the fact that they were just waiting for something to happen, like Frank Sinatra dies, so that they won't have, they can suspend no news about the whole world. And all they have on the news for 24 hours a day is news about Frank Sinatra. (laughs) And everybody has to listen to Frank Sinatra together. And everybody has to watch Frank Sinatra movies together, because he just died. You know, it just seems to me that that's a kind of, um, there's something very defeatist about that attitude, I think. it's You could sort of like say, well, it's nice to have the whole public sort of thinking as, you know, collective. But I'd rather think Black Lives Matter is a better way of thinking collectively. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Olivia de Havilland just died, you know. I, at least for me, it's a more useful way. It creates something. Whereas everybody looking at Olivier de Havilland films at the same time, I don't know what it, if it, what it creates is that important. Mm-hmm.